and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 366th show is Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder, who will be talking about the Uyghur Muslim voices in China. Our history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. Terry, you get to start us off. Okay, thank you. Dr. Byler, my next question actually is about the Uyghur children. Um, I had read that in 2017 about a half million of these children were separated from their parents and placed in preschool camps. Can you talk about um, what's happening there with their children? Mm-hmm. Right. So as all of these people were taken to the camps, there were people from the adult population, mostly between the ages of 15 and 55, mostly men, probably at least two-thirds or, or more are men, but there's also a lot of women. And many times if a, if the, if a woman is taken, she's taken along with her husband because both of them were practicing forms of Islam that the state had decided was a, a, a kind of criminalized form. Um, and so that means that their children became wards of the state. And so in some areas now, um, the, the Uyghur majority areas, something on the order of 70% of the children have been taken to uh, preschools, um, which are, you know, that's how they're talked about in Chinese as preschools, but they're, they're really a, a kind of camp or orphanage system or residential school system where children are held apart from their, their family members for, for most of their life. Um, maybe on you know, select weekends they're allowed to visit a relative, but for the most part they're, they're being held inside these camps. Um, and, and inside the, the preschools, um, the teachers are, are Mandarin-speaking Chinese folks from other parts of China that have been hired specifically for this purpose to come and, and teach these children how to speak Chinese, um, how to embrace sort of political ideology um, that's coming from the state, and also Han cultural values. And Han is the majority group in China. Um, so that means that the, the Uyghurs are really being, these Uyghur children are really being um, taught to see their, their Uyghurness as something that is not important or something that's lacking. Um, and also they're, they're taught to think about their, their parents' um, their parents' education parents' um, commitment to, to Uyghur identity as something that is uh, backward or something that, that they shouldn't embrace. Um, and so it's a way of sort of t- turning the children against their parents um, in, in pretty significant ways. Of course, it doesn't always work. I mean, I think there's, there's lots of children that are just being um, you know, traumatized through this process. Um, and so it's unclear exactly what the outcome will be. I mean, if we want to think about analogies, it's, it's quite similar to what happened to Native Americans when they were sent to residential schools. Um, and in many cases, you know, those children did not forget that they were Native American uh, when they came out of those, those um, institutions. Instead, they were, they were really traumatized by them. And so it's, it's something that um, could have very long-term effects, um, and it's something that I think is one of the most you know, uh, devastating and, and troubling aspects of what's happening to the Uyghurs. Yeah. Um, Darren, I'm interested along that line, or sort of following that up, um, what kind of research are, are, are you and others who are interested in, in this situation doing? And I'm thinking particularly in, in terms of comparing what's going on to Native Americans, because, boy, this sounds like a 
1984, 21st century version of of what uh, happened to, to Native Americans in the in the uh, 19th century in in the United States. Uh, is there being research done and comparisons made between those two situations? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's the approach that a number of us are taking: is is really thinking comparatively about. Um, what's happened in other locations um, and what it looks like today. So in many ways, it's 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 worse or it's different at least in the sense that there's all this technology that's being used to control the population. There's an immense police force that's behind it and operationalizing it, um, and there's no real legal system to protect these people at all. Um, so that makes it, it different in some ways from from other contexts. Um, at the same time, those parallels are, are, are certainly there. Uh, I was in, in Kazakhstan uh, in January interviewing a lot of people that had just come across the border, um, and I, I managed to interview around 40 of them, but there was dozens and dozens more that were, that were waiting to be interviewed, and I just didn't have time to, to talk to all of them. Um, so there's lots of people that have come across the border, mostly Kazakhs, um, that either were you know outside of the camps but seeing what was happening to their friends and and family members, or were actually in the camps and then were eventually released, um, that managed to get out and come to Kazakhstan. And those are the people that are really able to sort of bear witness to what happened um, and to really f- sort of flesh out those those differences and similarities to these other systems. Um, so it's going to be something that will take years and years to unpack, um, years and years to, to look at. Um, but uh, there's a lot, a lot of similarities, and then there's also these differences. And, and so talking about it, I think, in mainstream places like the New York Times and others is important because it raises awareness, but then there's this longer-term sort of scholarly work that needs to be done to really understand you know, how all of this worked. Okay. Um, let's take a look at it from an American perspective. Are there any NGOs or other organizations um either, I should say, with the United States or internationally, that is really setting its focus on the uh, humanitarian crimes that are happening here. Also, are there any uh, elected American politicians that are saying that this has to be stopped? Mm-hmm. Right. There, there certainly are. So Human Rights Watch, which is a global organization but has a, a strong presence here in the U.S., um, has been at really the forefront of, of analyzing these tools and the systems that are in place um, in China uh, and they're being leveraged against the Uyghurs. And there's another group based in D.C. called the Uyghur Human Human Rights Project um, that is also doing excellent work. Um, Both of them, both of those groups uh, need more funding, um, but they've they've done uh, a lot of really good work already. Um, In terms of elected officials, there are a number that that have taken a stand on this. the Congress has actually passed in both the House and the Senate has passed a, a Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act um, that would leverage sanctions against the key figures of political leaders that, that carried out these and, and instituted these camps and also put sanctions on, on some of the tech, technology companies that uh, did the surveillance mm-hmm. and decided who should be go, who should go to the camps. Um, one of the complicating factors is that gets tied up in what the Trump administration has has already been doing in terms of a sort of trade war with China, and so many people kind of conflate the two, not really understanding that in one that that these sanctions that are related to the Uyghur case are are really about human rights issues, not about trade and and sort of economic leverage. Um, it makes it quite complicated. Uh, 
there are elected officials that really care. Uh, Marco Rubio has has pushed it on the on the right. Um, I think kind of drawing on his his background as a Cuban American and sort of being anti-communist. Um, but then there's others on the on the left that have also been a champion of this. Um, so people like you know Elizabeth Warren and Joe, Joe Biden and others um, have have made strong statements about it. Okay, Terry. Yes, um, Dr. Bader, can you talk a little bit more about their unique, uh, this unique ethnic group, about their, perhaps their music or literature, art or dress? Sure. Um, so the, the Uyghurs, like I said, um, are a Muslim group, a Sufi group, and so um, the most distinctive uh, style of dress that, that associated with that is historically the sort of prayer caps that they wear. Men wear a, a cap called a dopa, um, and women also do that as well. Um, they also have a traditional form of silk, uh, called atlas. It's a sort of striped pattern um, that they've worn for, for centuries as well. Um, their dance is a Sufi-style dance, uh, sort of twirling um, often uh, with hand uh, gestures. Um, there's a whole range of different forms of dance and, and song that's associated with them. Most of it's set to forms of Sufi poetry, so there's lots of uh, imagery of uh, of love, of seeking the beloved, of of kind of the the passion that a moth has for the for a flame, uh, or for a candle, um, where you're almost being burned by how much you love the beloved. Um, that's a you know both a sort of r- romantic imagery and also a, a more spiritual one. Um, so those are the those are the kind of images that that, that come out of of Uyghur dance and song. Um, their food is also quite famous. They eat a lot of, of bread, um, a kind of naan that's that's based that's baked in a, a tonur, uh, which is a kind of earthen oven. Um, and they have uh, a staple dish called uh, lachman, which is a kind of polo. Or, or, it's a it's a kind of pole noodle uh, with a lamb-based sauce, and also another dish, a, a kind of pilaf called polo. Um, all of it's very delicious. Um, it's actually a, a farmer's diet um, because they're traditionally farmers so you have to be careful not to eat too much of it um, which I found out you know by living there for several years <laughs> thank you all right um, I guess I'm going to get the opportunity to ask the last question here uh, and you mentioned in the ra- at the end of the radio segment um, about some forced labor uh, going on with the Uyghur and, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and in general have there been um, actions or attempts by the Chinese government to relocate. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're connected, um, the relocation and the labor. Already in 2018, we started to see uh, factories being built adjacent to the camps. You can see these in the satellite images that you can find using Google Earth. And then we began to hear reports of people being transferred from the camp space, the prison area, into this factory space. Most of those factories that were being built are focused on textile and garment manufacturing. And so our estimates are that, you know, several hundred thousand, it could be, you know, 100 to 400,000 people have been sent into these factories that are adjacent to camps, people that were in your detainees and then sent to the camps, sent to the factories. The factories themselves are still kind of part of the camp system. Often the the teachers that were in the camp are the same kind of middle-level managers in the factories. There's surveillance systems in the factories. They're not permitted to leave the factory grounds at any point or contact their family except with express permission. There's education that's a part of it as well. They're being taught Chinese and state ideology at night. 
they're often not paid um, uh, the minimum wage, um, and they have no way of negotiating a contract because they're told very directly if they don't work according to how they're instructed, uh, they'll be sent back to the camp. Um, and so there's a, a real coercive element to it. And in addition to that, there's also been uh, at least 80,000 people that have been transferred from the, the Uyghur region to other parts of China to work in factories. Um, most of that, again, is in textiles, but then there's also uh, electronics that are being manufactured by Uyghurs um, and, uh, and other things. Mostly lower skilled work where there doesn't have to be a lot of training. Um, many, many companies... Uh, I think something over 80, something like 80 brands, global brands, are implicated in the forced labor, this form of coercive labor that, that Uyghurs are being forced to do. Um, and they range from things like H&M and Gap and Target and, and, and most of the brands you'd see in the mall to things to the electronic companies like Apple um, and Sony and, and others. Um, there's a very good report on this called Uyghurs for Sale um, that you could find um, online. That's put out by ASPIE, uh, Australian Strategic um, uh, ASPIE. I forget what it stands for, but it's, it's something that's from the uh, Australian National University. Um, so if you want to know more, that's where you should go. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 366th show, Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've been talking about Uyghur Muslim voices in China. The history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.